As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The following Redline episode contains references to themes and events that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Redline, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Extrajudicial killings. The phrase alone is enough to inspire a morbid mix of curiosity and dread. But the topic is far more complex and probably far less black and white than most people realize. As an example, if I were to come up to you and ask, should governments be able to carry out targeted assassinations of people overseas without any sort of trial or jury, I would imagine that a lot of you might say no, that everyone deserves their day in court, and that sometimes bureaucracies get things wrong. And on that statement, I kind of agree. But now, let's step back a few years ago, to 2011, where a targeted assassination carried out by the government was enough to inspire international headlines and boost the president's approval rating by multiple points, with responses from diplomats and foreign governments alike being almost unanimously positive. The event I'm talking about was done during the Obama administration, and it was the assassination of Osama bin Laden. Now, whilst a lot of people cheered, the event did spark international debate over whether the US was within their rights to carry out this sort of operation, as they technically had no permission from Pakistan to do so. Now, to be fair, the US would argue that, well, the Pakistani security services, the ISI, were absolutely compromised with Taliban sympathizers. And if the US had informed the ISI before the operation, it's almost a guarantee that someone would have tipped off bin Laden and he would have been gone within the hour. And whilst that is probably true, it's also true that this was technically a violation of Pakistan's sovereignty. But all in all though, I would still argue that if you ask most US citizens if it was the right thing to do, most people would agree with Obama's decision here. So the US gets a pass on this one. But what about when other countries do this? Surely the US wasn't expecting to be the only ones being able to play this game. Countries like Russia began to look around and saw that the US had effectively gotten away with their drone programs operating overseas with impunity. And defense officials within the Kremlin thought, hey, I kind of like that idea. However, being the superpower Russia is, it doesn't have the drones to do a program like the US does. So instead, what we got was a much lower budget version of it, with events like the Russian assassination of Alexander Litvinenko back in 2006. The case being famous for Litvinenko being poisoned with a cup of polonium tea, a highly radioactive substance not easily accessible by the general public. Why the story made headlines, though, is that Litvinenko was poisoned on British soil meaning the crime happened within Britain's borders. Now, upon Litvinenko's death, the British did enact some sanctions upon Russia and widespread finger-waggling by the British government. But that was kind of it. To Russia, they saw a whistleblower who was actively exposing corruption and inefficiencies within the FSB out to the world, to their enemies, in their view, possibly threatening the very stability of Russia itself. So they took a gamble and removed the issue. And their punishment for doing so, well, was not much. Now, it's not a secret that the US can usually get away with a lot more than most other countries. It's one of the small perks 
of operating 11 carrier fleets and bases all around the world. But if Russia could seemingly also get away with it, to assassinate a defector loudly on foreign soil and face almost no consequences for it, well, then surely other players were starting to think about it, and people began to wonder who would be next to try their luck and take those steps to remove those pesky dissidents causing problems abroad. What happened next was no surprise to anyone watching. After this period, we saw an explosion in targeted assassinations, ranging from Saudi Arabia going after critical journalists like Jamal Khashoggi, even though that he was killed whilst on holiday in Turkey and held US residency. We saw China rolling out police stations to harass and kidnap Chinese citizens abroad. We saw Israel conduct drone strikes and airstrikes across Lebanon, Syria, and Iran, and ramp up its targeted attacks by Mossad. We even saw smaller nations like Turkmenistan and Belarus feel perfectly safe to force planes to land so they could grab their dissidents or even kidnap their citizens abroad to bring them home by force and make them stand for show trial. All of which knowing that no one could throw stones at them while sitting in their own glass houses. Now with each of those cases, they all had moral arguments for why they went down that road. The Saudis might argue that Khashoggi could have destabilized the Saudi regime during a tricky transition period. Beijing might suggest that these Chinese dissidents often fled abroad with money that the Chinese state feels should have probably stayed in China. And Turkmenistan, well, it's Turkmenistan. Most of the operations we see are just the tip of the iceberg, with the vast majority of them being done much more quietly, making sure that it achieves the government's aim, whilst also making sure that the local government doesn't have to make a comment or even acknowledge what's going on, at the risk of losing political face. And that was the situation until just a few weeks ago, with the shooting of Hardeep Singh Nijar, allegedly done by the Indian government upon Canadian soil. Now, while some people looked at this event and just shrugged and gave a, well, India regards him as a terrorist and this kind of thing happens all the time, others saw the openness of this particular operation and shuddered, seeing something that many have been warning about for quite a while now, that a new phase of this problem was finally rearing its ugly head. More players were entering the game of weaponizing targeted assassinations. But why does that actually matter? Is this problem bound to spiral further out of control, or are there ways to actually slow the tempo of these killings down? Have we collectively just accepted that extrajudicial killings will continue to happen and are just a part of life now? Or will countries finally begin to actively enforce the laws that we have on paper to prevent these kind of events? Why did the targeting of Dijar matter so much to this particular issue? And with the fact they got away with it, what does that mean for geopolitics? Those are just some of the questions we're going to be tackling here this week. And to help us understand what's going on right underneath our noses, and what brought us to this situation, we do know our first guest. Part 1. Above the Rules Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Extrajudicial killings or targeted assassinations are different than normal war because often the target is not a considered a legitimate combatant of war. For example, a terrorist organization or an insurgent organization, something like that. So actually killing them outside the context of war in international humanitarian law is considered extrajudicial killing. Sean McFaint is a professor of war and strategy at Georgetown University. Sean is one of the world's leading experts on mercenaries and the future of warfare. He advises the Pentagon, the CIA, Hollywood, and numerous Washington think tanks on the ever-evolving world of private military contractors. Sean began his career as a paratrooper and officer in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne, before then becoming a global private military contractor himself and serving throughout several theaters. On top of that, he also authored one of my favorite books, The New Rules of War, Unpacking the World of PMCs and the Murky Waters of Black and Gray Operations, making him the perfect guest for this week's topic. So we're thrilled to have him back on the program today. Hollywood has the lone sniper someplace, but that's not how nation states do it these days and they want or need to. There's all sorts of other ways people get killed. And some of it is clandestine, which means it's it's designed so nobody ever even asks a question. But what most people in the last 20 years is that Drones have become the new way of nation states conduct targeted killing. But the Geneva Convention actually bans this. So when we think about extrajudicial killings, most people probably think back to the Cold War and spy thrillers. But what a lot of people may not be aware of is that, at least officially, the practice of targeted killings by the US was banned by Gerald Ford back in the 1970s. But these rules that were passed by Ford actually prevent these sort of operations taking place or have some of these agencies since then found ways around it? The CIA has a special operations group which targeted officials who were seen as pro-communist. It changes its name every couple of years. It's like a paramilitary Title 50 clandestine program. How it came to pass is that the U.S. in the 1950s, under especially President Eisenhower with his New Look policy, wanted to roll back communist regimes around the world using methods that included not just nuclear deterrence, but sort of CIA activities. We saw this come to pass in places like the CIA overthrow in Guatemala of the sort of of the President Arbenz and Kermit Roosevelt, who was working with the CIA to overthrow the Iranian regime in the early 1950s. And during the Vietnam War, the Phoenix program was a targeted assassination of Viet Cong, very much inspired by a guy called David Galula, who was a French Tunisian who was trying to figure out how you defeat insurgencies. All came to a head in the U.S. in the, in the middle of the 1970s. Congress and the American people were feeling that the CIA had gone off the reservation. And there were several commissions to investigate those congressional ones, but especially the Church Committee. Senator Church had a, had a, com- a commission to investigate all the so-called misdeeds of the CIA from World War II to the, to the 70s. 
and found out that the CIA had really done things that were incompatible with what America was fighting for. And that was the decade of intelligence reform where Gerald Ford and then even more President Carter basically neutered the CIA. But after 9-11 is when the debate opened up again. And it was decided by President Bush, but also by Obama, Trump, and even Biden, that when you're fighting terrorists, you can't always abide by the laws of armed conflict. So now we have things like the targeted drone program. After 9-11, the US Congress passed the Patriot Act, as well as the Authorization of Military Force, which gave the Department of Defense and the various US security agencies a much looser set of rules in which to abide by, as long as they act within a manner they see fit in the fight against terrorism. Now, since then, the targeted killings like the SEAL team operation that went after bin Laden have been ramped up, but nowhere near as much as the drone programs. Now, numbers do get a bit fuzzy when it comes to drone strikes, and we have seen some administrations in the White House be far more transparent about their numbers than others. Now, what we do know is that these strikes would begin under Bush and then rise with Obama as the technology improved to then go on and increase by over 400% under the Trump administration before coming right back down to beneath Obama's numbers under Biden with the peak year for strikes being 2017, the estimates suggesting that around 19,000 people were killed that year. Now, totals do vary based on your source, but the closest, most consensus argument we can find is that around 92,000 drone strikes have been carried out across 19 countries since 2001. And while these strikes are legally murky at best, where it gets even more complicated is with cases like Anwar al-Awakari. Awakari was killed by a US drone strike in 2011, but unlike other drone strikes, Awakari was a US citizen which gave us proof that the US was able to legally target their own citizens under these programs. Now, there are multiple perspectives on the ethics around this one, because any Awakari was allegedly planning attacks on the United States. But how did these programs expand to be so broad to allow the US to carry out these sort of operations? There was a lot of discussion right after 9-11 in the President George W. Bush about how do we fight a war against terror? How do we do it? Because our opponent are certainly not nation states who abide by the laws of armed conflict, not even in a nominal sense. They, in fact, they exploit it. They ride around the battlefield in ambulances and they put their headquarters in hospitals and mosques, which are protected in the laws of armed conflict. You're not allowed to bomb them. So how do you fight this type of enemy? And one of the the White House lawyers at that time, whose name was John Wu, infamously said the laws of armed conflict are, quote, quaint, unquote, and that we have a duty to think beyond them. And this sort of opened the the Pandora's box of, well, if we're going to go after people like Osama bin Laden, we're going to have to do it somehow. And they're no, they're not exactly combatants. They're not exactly civilians or in this sort of gray area that international law does not address very well. And then what happens also when you have an American citizen in a place like Yemen who is actively supporting an extremist Islamic agenda? And it was decided that he too should be killed, which created a lot of controversy in Washington, D.C., where, you know, are we now assassinating without judgment or trial our own citizens who we think from afar are participating in supporting enemies of the U.S.? Um, So this is still a very much of a controversy among groups. So how are targets these strikes actually selected? And is there actually a threshold? Does the White House limit these strikes to only more important targets and facilities, or are they also used against low-level targets? 
So sometimes they have a, a very high value target at HVT, like Soleimani, who is sort of the Iranian leader of special operations and the connection with Hezbollah, and was a military genius of this new type of war. And he was just very hard to kill because he is very clever about you know, remaining covert himself. So when the U.S. had intelligence that he was getting off an airplane in the air in the Baghdad airport, they sent a missile into the jetway between the airplane and the airport, killing him, right? Which was very public, very loud. Also, Zawahiri, in July of 2022, the U.S. killed uh, Zawahiri in Afghanistan on his front porch in Kabul in a very loud way. Again, a drone strike. And the reason they did it is in part because it was the only time he was vulnerable and it was a now or never moment. So they took it. But it also creates a deterrent effect. Can you take us through what those effects are? The theory is it persuades people in these organizations, these terrorist organizations, not to step up and become leaders. Because if they step up and become leaders, they have very short lifespan. So that's also part of it. But there's a lot more drone strikes that happen in places like Afghanistan, which are quiet. They're not publicized. And that is also what investigators try to uncover. The question also is what happens to collateral damage? What happens to civilians who happen to be standing next to that person? Do they make a mistake? As we saw in the exit of U.S. troops and personnel at the end of the Afghan war in 2020, they thought a terrorist was in the crowd. They blew up the truck and it turns out it was a, 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 it was not a bomb truck. It was a truck full of propane gas and it was not run by terrorists. It was run by some local civilians and they blew up a lot of people as a result. It was a huge strategic and tactical intelligence failure. The U.S. does spend a lot of money to carry out these sort of operations. In fact, in the case of the Iranian general Soleimani, the U.S. used a $250,000 specialty missile known as a Hellfire R9X, which instead of just exploding like a normal missile does, actually drops from the sky with a rapidly spinning set of blades, which in the case of Soleimani, turned him into what was described to me as a pink mist, whilst leaving the other men in the car around him completely unaffected. Well, at least physically unaffected. So why does the U.S. always tend to go for these high-cost options rather than these standard dumb bomb options? And do most other nations also go down this expensive road or tend to go down those cheaper roads instead? The U.S. always goes with, the, say, the Rolls-Royce model rather than the cheap model of car. So everything the U.S. does is always at a premium, very expensive drones, very high-tech intelligence and infrastructure to support it. And there's hundreds of people behind it. But you could do this on the cheap. You don't need a Predator drone, which costs millions of dollars. You don't need Hellfire missiles, which also costs $100,000, $300,000. You can take off-the-shelf technology. You can rig a drone to be a, a kamikaze drone, or you can have a fleet of them, like 10 of them, and swarm a target. And you could use it with off-the-shelf technology. This type of scenario becomes cheaper, more accessible, and that means it will attract more users. And we're, we'll probably see this not just amongst countries who are looking for a cheaper solution to do this, but also from private military companies. Again, you can buy drones off the internet. You can rig them to be suicide drones and away they go. We've seen a lot of this in the war in Ukraine. 
So I think that's the future. Well, whilst we mostly think of these sorts of operations being carried out by the US or the UK or even Russia, this topic came up recently in global headlines because of the killing of Hardeep Singh Nija, a Sikh nationalist and senior advocate for the independent Khalistan movement, who was, and we'll say allegedly to be polite, killed by Indian security services inside Canada. Now, India might not be everyone's first thought when it comes to these sort of operations, but do you think because of recent circumstances, we are likely to see more similar cases of these sorts of events coming from players outside of usual suspects? Poor nations want to do this if you well india is not exactly a poor nation but they have adversaries who are not in any military and so they're looking at it and they see it as an armed forces role but i do think that we will see this industry or this capability become increasingly privatized and remember if it's being used in a place like the congo which it is who's going to report that so it's not really just a theoretical question as we've already seen that it's a way of securing or taking out enemies that doesn't get a lot of media coverage in in places like Yemen or in Central Africa. We've also seen this in Syria, in the Levant, where terrorist groups are using drones for reconnaissance, for attack. We see things like the Iranians using drones to attack Saudi oil infrastructure. So it it's not it's no longer a theory, it's a practice. I hear some people say that all of this came to light because the Indian operatives were simply just sloppy and got caught. And I hear other people say that this is a big move forward by India and that are now emboldened Modi feels that he can do this all publicly and out in the open. As A, he feels like India is a powerful enough nation to not be criticized too hard, and B that it sends a message to the anti-India dissidents abroad, telling them that India's reach extends far beyond just India's borders itself. But which do you think is a more credible theory? Well, it's a great question. So it's the first time it's public, not the first time they've done it. They've done other covert and clandestine operations in Canada. And this issue is not new between the, the Sikh separatist community in exile, if you will, in Canada and India. I think that... Modi made this publicly known to send a very clear message to Indian domestic audiences, to Canadian domestic audiences, and to the world. It's a political message about his resolve. So I don't think it was an operation that went south or got blown. I think to some extent it was deliberate. And if it did get blown, it's a political opportunity that Modi can use. As Churchill used to say, never let a, a good crisis go to waste. But these actions are illegal under international law. So why is no one charged? Well, this has always been the problem about the laws of war or laws of armed conflict or international law in general. It's, it's easy to write laws on paper with ink, but enforcing them is quite difficult. And so one reason that we see the increased use of uh, drone targeted assassination, the increased use of private security companies, the increased spread of terrorism is because it doesn't fit neatly into any clean box of the laws of armed conflict, which are really they're really meant to regulate World War II-like conflicts, conventional wars, state on state, military on military, uniform and uniform, flag on flag. And of course, nobody fights that way anymore. This is a, a kind of an obsolete way of warfare. But we haven't updated 
the laws of armed conflict to reflect modern war, which looks a lot more like this. And because of that, people are attracted to using drones, to using private security firms, to using mercenaries, because they offer good plausible deniability. Iran or whoever could say it wasn't us, even though the evidence shows it's very clear. But the real biggest reason is that there's not really much political will amongst other countries. I mean, is Saudi Arabia going to go to war against Iran because of a, of a single drone strike against an oil infrastructure? Probably not. So it's a way of, of a small fish nibbling at a shark and getting away with it. All these things are meant to skirt international law, but ultimately international law is pretty feeble when it comes to enforcement. So ultimately we're seeing this develop because the laws of armed conflict are not sufficient, not just in enforcement, but even in concept anymore. It's a 1940s version of thinking about war in a 2020s era. It doesn't work that way. So if international law doesn't hold these agencies accountable, who does? For the US, an example, who do these agencies have to go to to get permission to carry out any sort of operation like this? If it's done by members of the security community of that country, it does have to go through the bureaucracy. Now, whether that goes to the head of the state or not, we don't know, but these are not rogue units. I know that in the United States of America, the president of the United States has to approve it. It's called a finding. So the way it works is that the intelligence community provides a list of high value targets for target assassination to the National Security Council. They then look through it and then they present who they think should be on that list for consideration by the president of the United States. And then he ticks off names for his, for his approval. And then it goes down to three agencies. One is the CIA. One is National Security Advisor Agency, which does all the signals intelligence, you know, tapping the internet, tapping cell phones around the world to find these people. And then also to Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC, which is the very elite U.S. military special operations forces units, plural, that also assist in some of these paramilitary activities. So that's the case in the United States. So ignore the obvious joke on this one, but... Where do you think the red line is for the United States here? What's an example of something you think that would be just too far for the White House to ever sign off on? I think a country killing on its own soil, its own citizen, would cross that line. But, you know, there's different types of camps. There's the international legal community, international public law. You find them at The Hague. You find them in the United Nations and NGOs who are very doctrinaire, and they also are not people who've ever had to put themselves in any physical danger. So it's very easier that for them to castigate this way of war. They have, as I say, no skin in the game. They rely on others to do that for them. But those who are charged with national security are looking at this more and more as a necessity, not an option. And as we see different countries engage in this, big countries, powerful countries like the United States, like Russia, like India, do it and get away with it, then it, we should expect it that it will trickle down. I think there is no red line because if you look 30 years ago and look at the red lines that existed 30 years ago and look at warfare today, we've crossed all of them, except for using nuclear weapons. That policy line is not written in stone. It's blurry. And it seems a case-by-case -case situation. If you remember, every United States president has engaged in this since 9-11. 
despite who they are. So President Obama greenlighted the operation to assassinate Osama bin Laden, who is on Pakistan's territory being harbored by Pakistan, an ally in the with the US. And that was has largely been hailed as a good move by America, both Democrat and Republican for the most part. So there is, it's an ever evolving line. But I think the international norm against this type of warfare is eroding. And we've seen a lot of norms erode in the past 20 years. You've seen the norm against using mercenaries erode. The norm against targeted assassinations erode. And as the norms erode, and as this type of warfare is seen as more necessary and the way to wage it is becoming cheaper and more available, then yes, I think we're going to see a lot more of this going forward. And whether it's countries around the world, but it can also be the super rich as well. So I think we're going to see more of this because when countries do this and get away with it with little to no consequence, then it serves as a role model for other countries who are thinking about it. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. So the can of worms is open. And it seems that the only red line left across for the US is the US targeting United States citizens on United States soil. But what would actually happen if we went down that road and gave the White House permission to carry out programs like this? Well, luckily for us, we don't have to make this a purely theoretical exercise, as there's another country out there that has already crossed that red line. And in fact, in recent times, has begun to really ramp up its use of these domestic programs. But how has it worked out for that country? Has it made it a more secure and prosperous nation that can much better deal with issues of terrorism? Or has it simply given the leadership of the country a terrifying power to wield, not only against enemies of the state, but also against perceived political enemies? Well, let's take a look at that other country and answer the question of what these programs have done to domestic society. To help us answer the questions around that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Sudden Oligarch Death Syndrome The KGB, when they thought about eliminating someone, it was mostly political enemies of the Kremlin. And I remember my conversations with some FSB uh, special forces in the early 2000s, and they told me that, look, well, Israelis, they know how to do that. Uh, we need to do something like Mossad. We need to go after them and their countries and kill them, just like Mossad is doing. So in terms of uh, assassinations abroad, especially in the early 2000s, the FSB was clearly inspired by the Israeli experience. But unfortunately, and it is to say something about the nature of the political regime in, in the country, the FSB immediately started attacking not only terrorists, but political enemies of the Kremlin, almost immediately. Andrei Soldatov is a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for European Policy Analysis, specializing in the political machinations 
within the Russian security services and Duma. Andrei is a Russian investigative journalist in exile in London and the co-founder and editor of Agentura.ru, a publication serving as a watchdog of the Russian security services activities, which he's been covering since 1999. In addition to all this, he's also the co-author of The New Nobility, The Red Web, all about Russia's efforts to target dissidents abroad and the inner workings of the Russian security services. So we're thrilled to have him on the program today. So Putin got his law in the beginning of the 2000s, which actually allowed him to use the armed forces and special forces abroad ostensibly to kill terrorists. And two years later, we got Alexander Litvinenko attacked in London, poisoned. And it was a horrible attack. And of course, Litvinenko was many things, but he was not a terrorist. So from the beginning under Putin, it was a combination of two things of old Soviet tradition of killing Kremlin's enemies everywhere in the world, just to make a point, and to harass Russian political immigration, and also of killing terrorists, killing people who fought in the North Caucasus. Because assassinating someone abroad is never only about assassinating someone, it's about sending a message. So we'll talk about the cases inside of Russia in a bit, but I want to start by talking about the cases outside of Russia with two very famous ones being the case of Alexander Litvinenko, a former FSB worker who became a whistleblower for corruption within the organization, who upon threats in Russia would flee to the UK. Once in the UK, Litvinenko was then poisoned with tea laced with radioactive polonium-210, something almost exclusively only found within nuclear reactors. Litvinenko would die slowly in a British hospital as the substance effectively melted him from the inside, but would give testimony to Scotland Yard about these operations before he died. The second case would be that of Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia Skripal, who were poisoned in 2018 in Salisbury in the UK. Skripal was a military officer in the GRU, who served as an intelligence officer for the Russians since 1990. However, in 1995, he became a double agent for the British, passing on information from the GRU to British intelligence, and would be subsequently arrested for it in 2004, to which he was held in Russian prison until 2010, at which point he was given a pardon and then sent back to Britain in a prisoner exchange in 2010. Now, he went quiet for a few years, but in 2016, he began assisting multiple governments in NATO with intelligence on the Russian security services and Russian organized crime, traveling to Estonia, Czechia, and Spain quite often. But whilst about to head out to Switzerland to give testimony out there, himself and his daughter Yulia would be poisoned with the Russian nerve agent Novichok and be rushed into a British hospital. Now, unlike Livinenko, the Skripals would survive, but with massive long-term damage onto their bodies, with both of them now residing in New Zealand under fake identities. But now that we have some background, what I'm hoping you'll lay out for me is why the Russians would choose to use these very obvious poisons like polonium-210 or Novichok, which can be very easily tied back to Russia, as opposed to, let's say, just bleach or rat poison that you could get from any store, where you could truly make it look like it was an anonymous kill. One needs to be only reminded what might happen to you if you cross the line. So in this kind of environment and in this kind of society, sending messages of threat is extremely, extremely effective. And I well remember when Skripal was poisoned in, in London again, in the UK, I was researching for our book and I made a point talking to most of Russian oligarchs in exile. And all of them at some point mentioned Novichok. And you might think, well, this operation was a disaster. Russian operatives were exposed. Paul was not killed, and it was a, a nightmare, a de- diplomatic nightmare for the Russian Federation. But nevertheless, 
lots of people uh, took it as a sign that the rules changed again and they act and live accordingly to these new rules, which means to be more cautious, to be more hesitant, to understand what is at stake now. So you might be poisoned like that. And these people in the Kremlin and, and the Russian security services, they don't give a damn about the consequences, about the costs of such operations. If they decide to kill you, they will do that. And it would be painful and horrible. So the message is always, always, always important. But why use poison? Why don't you use the standard gun or drug overdose or mugging gone wrong or even car accident that's usually used by most other nations for this kind of an operation? Anna Politkovska was first poisoned in 2004, two years before she was shot to death. So even with one person, you see that two methods were used against her. We also have a list of Russian dissidents like Vladimir Karamurza, who was poisoned twice in 2015 and in 2017, and now he's in jail. So you, it, with him, you have a combination of, say, assassination methods combined with legal methods. We cannot say that it's all about poisoning abroad. We have lots of cases, specifically in Turkey, when people were attacked by other methods. But I would say that poison is is very, very, very special kind of method if you want to attack because what makes poison so unique is that the victim doesn't die alone. It usually takes time and the victim dies surrounded by friends and family, which means that things are horrible not only for one particular person but for for friends and families. And now in the age of social media, it means that this horrible experience is shared by many, many people. So if you want to send a really strong message to a particular group of people, journalists, for instance, or political activists, poison is, is very, very effective. Now, in recent years, we have seen the appearance of what many are calling sudden oligarch death syndrome, where since the war in Ukraine ramped up in 2022, quite a number of Russian oligarchs would die under mysterious circumstances. Just in 2022 alone, in January, Leonid Shulman, the director of transport for Gazprom, would be found dead in his bathroom in St. Petersburg. Igor Nosov, CEO of the Far East Arctic Development Corporation, or KRDV, as well as the former deputy governor of the Nizhny Novgorod Oblast, would die under mysterious circumstances. Also in February, Alexander Tolyakov, deputy director general of the Unified Settlement Center for Gazprom, would be found dead in his garage in St. Petersburg. Mikhail Watford, an oil and gas billionaire residing in England, would also be found dead in his garage in Surrey, England. In March, Vasily Melnikov, the CEO and owner of Medstorm, a large medical supplies contractor for the Russian military, would be found dead alongside his family in his apartment in Nizhny Novgorod. In April, Vladislav Avayev, the former vice president of the Gazprom Bank, would also be found dead alongside his family in his apartment in Moscow. Sergei Protosenya, the former deputy chairman of Novotec, Russia's largest LNG provider, would also be found dead alongside his family in his home in Spain. Moving to May, Alexander Sobotin, a board member of Luke Oil, would be found dead in the basement of a Jamaican shaman's residence in Moscow. In July, Yuri Voronov, the founder of Astra Shipping, the major contractor for Russia's Arctic Gazprom contracts, would be found dead in his swimming pool with multiple gunshot wounds. Dan Rapoport, an ethnically Latvian outspoken critic of the Kremlin, would mysteriously fall out of a window just one and a half kilometers from the White House in Washington. Ivan Bachorin, director of aviation for the Russian Far East and Arctic Development Corporation, or KRDV, would mysteriously drown on a beach in Vladivostok. Vladimir Sogorkin, the editor-in-chief of Komsoloskaya Pravda, would reportedly suffocate whilst out to lunch. 
Anatoly Grashchenko, the former head of the Moscow Aviation Institute, one week later would reportedly fall down the stairs inside the institute. Pavel Peshnikov, director of digital logistics, a massive subsidiary of the Russian Railways Corporation, would die one week later again, allegedly shooting himself on the balcony of his apartment. In October, Nikolai Petrunin, the deputy of the state Duma, would allegedly die of complications from COVID, although no hospital would ever confirm that. Vlachislav Taran, the co-founder of Librotex, a cryptocurrency and foreign exchange market with a lot of Russian oligarchs' money tied up within it, would die in a mysterious helicopter accident in November. Vladimir Makai, the former foreign minister of Belarus, would contract a mystery illness coming back from the CSTO media in Armenia and would die just a couple of days later. In December, Grigory Korchinov, the director of Agima, a large IT company within Russia, would reportedly fall to his death from the balcony whilst officials from the Russian security services were executing a search warrant of his apartment. Dmitry Zelenkov, the co-founder of Donstroy, a large construction company within Russia, would also reportedly fall over the railing of his apartment. Then, two days later, Vladimir Bidenov would also suspiciously fall out of a hotel window. And again, we're still in 2022, with all of the following happening within four days of each other. Alexander Buzikov, the director general for the Admiralty Shipyards, a very large Russian Navy shipbuilder, would disappear under mysterious circumstances. Pavel Lantov, deputy member of the Legislative Assembly of the Vladimir Oblast, would fall out of a hotel window whilst holidaying in India. Alexei Maslov, the former commander-in-chief of the Russian ground forces and special representative of Ural Vagonzavod, Russia's largest tank producer, would also die mysteriously in a military hospital with no cause given. And to round out just 2022, Vladimir Nesterov, the engineer who is the director general of the Krachanov State Research and Production Space Center, would also die in mysterious circumstances just a few days after problems were announced with the Vostochny space program. Again, all of those are just 2022, and the 2023 list is set to be almost as long. So why the ramp up here in 2022? Was it just the war, or were there other factors? And how does this level of oligarchic churn compare to usual in Russia? After 2016, we got a series of mysterious deaths in the Russian foreign ministry. Some diplomats died in the States, in Africa, in Moscow, and they died of some completely mysterious reason. There was no clear explanation of what actually happened to them. And of course, you can always say, look, in Russia, men, if they are in the 60s, they drink a lot and they die early. So you can always find a plausible explanation if you are eager to find one, if you want to explain to yourself, but actually, no, 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 it's all fine. And again, this is the beauty of the system. You never send a clear message. You never say definitively what might be the next target. You always leave people guessing. And that makes things so, so effective. Of course, censorship is a horrible thing, but self-censorship is much more effective because you always try to understand when you are in this position, what is possible, what is not possible, how the lines shifted, what the Kremlin is thinking now about people like you. And when you are guessing, you're imposing more and more limits on yourself, on your family. And I've, I've seen that with many of my colleagues and friends and journalists and, and activists back in Moscow. When people try to justify why they cannot remain in profession, why they need to uh, move to something less risky. And if, say, uh, the pressure would be more direct, they would not be in position to, to deny that there is a pressure. But when you are dealing with a system which is so opaque, it means that you leave to people to find an excuse. 
for self-censorship. And uh, that is why we have so many infightings uh, inside Russian society uh, among journalists. Uh, for instance, Anna Politkovska was not the most popular journalist among journalists. Uh, even now, lots of people attack her. And I understand the reason. Uh, the reason is fear. You are so frightened by the political reality in your country that you just cannot stand that someone was so brave. Because if you admit that she was killed for political reason, you need to admit to yourself what kind of country you live in. And it's very traumatic. It's not easy. So obviously we've gone through a long list here, and a lot of these names have a lot in common, most of them having some ties to the Russian military or oil and gas, or have spoken out against the Kremlin or the war in Ukraine at some point. But in peacetime, who does the Russian government typically go after? Who are their main targets for these sort of assassinations? I would say that traditionally and institutionally, the main target for, for the Russian security services have been always the Russians. And the reason is that because lots of people inside of the Russian security services, despite all this boasting about the great Russia and all of that, uh, they share this feeling of uh, fragility of the political regime in the country. They believe that the country was almost completely destroyed in the 20th century by two revolutions, by 1917 and by what happened in 1991. And they think that the smallest thing might start a new revolution. And that is why political opponents should be targeted mercilessly, because they are the threat. And if you ask them, as I did, why do you think that this or that particular person who doesn't seem to be that important, why you target them? The answer would be always like, well, before 1917, Lenin was nobody, nobody remembered him, but all of a sudden, with the help of Germans, uh, he was brought to the country and he destroyed the mighty Russian Empire. Of course, this is absolutely ahistorical, but that is the perception they have, and that is why the main target are the Russians. Now, back in 2020, prominent Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny would be poisoned whilst on a flight from Tomsk to Moscow. The flight would be grounded, and Navalny would be rushed to a hospital in Omsk. Now, because of the quick grounding by the aircrew, Navalny would survive this ordeal, but then subsequently be jailed by the Russians later. Now, some would suggest that his attackers botched the operation, and this was supposed to kill him, whilst others would suggest that the attackers perfectly measured out just enough to poison him whilst keeping him alive. But knowing these operatives the way you do, which theory do you tend to lean towards? I would say that I do not believe that they're so sophisticated that they can measure the exact amount of poison. So they would like poison him, not but not kill him. I don't think it's actually feasible. I think that uh, the people who I know inside the system, they are ruthless and brutal, but they are not extremely sophisticated. Now, before the head of Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, would board the only plane in Russia with worse service than S7 airlines, that the Kremlin might begin to use Wagner to carry out these sorts of operations, ones that directly target Russian citizens, hoping to keep the Kremlin's reputation somewhat cleaner whilst still carrying out its aims politically. Now, upon Prigozhin joining the 2023 list, the Kremlin is looking to restructure what Wagner was, and it's still somewhat unclear what its aims within the Russian system will be. But do you think there's a genuine worry that the Kremlin may look to use these private forces to carry out the sorts of operations we've been talking about here today? I think that nowadays is changing. 
and I am extremely worried about uh, Wagner soldiers and what they could be used uh, in the future because it seems very logical for the Russian military intelligence to use them in assassination operations. We haven't seen that before, but we see some proxies. For instance, Krasikov, a guy who was, who was an assassin and he was caught in Germany, he was not officially with the Russian security services. He was a proxy. But again, it's very logical it's to use proxies for assassinations. And it's not only the Russian problem and not only the Russian approach to these kind of operations. If you look back into the history of assassinations carried out by, say, European countries like Spain, for instance, in the 1980s, when they decided to target Basque nationalists in France, they used Portuguese mercenaries. They didn't use professional soldiers from Spain. They used mercenaries. Because for these kind of operations, you do not need James Bonds. You need people who used to kill, uh, who don't care about the cost, who are disposable and not very sophisticated. Uh, that is why proxies might be extremely handy. Now, one of Litvinenko's allegations was that Putin is made aware of all assassinations to be carried out in Russia by the state. How true do you think that allegation is? What we know from documents is that Vladimir Putin loves to be briefed about the operations conducted by the Russian security services. He is briefed about actual operations carried out by the Russian security services. Once I was given documents about uh, the FSB attacking, targeting American journalists in Moscow, and I was really surprised that Vladimir Putin was briefed about the operation. Like, why the president should know all these details about surveillance on American journalists? But he was given all these details and not by the head of the service, but by the head of the department, which was in charge of conducting this particular operation. So Vladimir Putin actually loves to be briefed. And assassinations, of course, such a sensitive topic that, yes, I would agree that he's briefed in most of the cases. Vladimir Putin has been willing to go after a massive range of political, financial, and military figures within Russia, even willing to carry out attacks outside of Russia against nationals living abroad but he still hasn't gone after someone like an American ambassador or a British intelligence chief. So what do you think that is? And what do you think the red line not to be crossed is for Vladimir Putin? Well, that's a tricky question because we always assume that there are some lines and we took them for granted. For instance, that there cannot be any operations on the US soil. And yet we have this mysterious case of Mikhail Lessin, the former minister of press who was beaten to death in Washington, D.C. And what actually happened to him is still a big mystery. The other red line we took for granted that American journalists cannot be thrown to jail. And we all know that it's not the case anymore. We already have two American journalists in jail in Russia. So these lines are constantly shifting. We cannot take them for granted. That's the only lesson we have with Vladimir Putin. There are no lines which are forever. With the Russian economy and the war not going the way that Putin probably had hoped it would, do you think we're likely to see an even further ramping up of the attacks on Russian journalists, businessmen, and government figures by members of the Russian security services over the next year or so? I think that right now the Russian security services, they are playing a, a very subtle game with these people. Uh, for instance, if you check the list of high-level officials being arrested recently, it's always about some deputy, which is very smart, 
take, for instance, the Ministry of Digital Development. In the summer, they arrested the Deputy Minister Parshan uh, ostensibly for taking a bribe, but everybody understands that it was not a real case. The guy was responsible for something which is extremely important right now for the Russian economy. He was responsible for the Russian import substitution program. And it is extremely important for the Russian war effort because of the Western sanctions. So the guy was in charge of something really big. And nevertheless, he was arrested. Why? Because everybody understands once you get a deputy arrested, he would be squeezed for information on his superiors. So now you have lots of people inside the ministry feeling very nervous about what this arrested deputy is telling his interrogators inside of the FSB. And this is the way the Russian security services keep everybody off balance and control them. And it was quite interesting that two weeks after this arrest and the Minister of Digital Development, Ukrainian drones hit the offices of his ministry. And I spoke with some people afterwards in this ministry, and I asked them, what do you fear more, the drones or the FSB? And of course they said, look, yes, drones are really horrifying and we could be well, killed by them. But to be honest, the FSB is much more the real threat. And that is why they are staying loyal to him. In terms of attacks on oligarchs and on people in big state corporations, the Russian security services would use the same tactics of attacking some minor figures, squeezing them for compromising information, but making it clear to everybody that even if you stay loyal, we still have a lot of judge on you just in case. So please stay loyal. So we know the US has a robust system in place for these sorts of operations, where effectively no one is ever out of reach of the government. But what about other nations, with the lower price of drones and the increasing ease of travel across borders, as well as the added importance of nations like India, Indonesia, Japan, Turkey and Saudi Arabia within the global system, how are these nations looking to assert themselves against their dissidents abroad? And how will the US and Russia respond to these other players moving into their game? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest. Part 3. Message Received It's sort of driven by a lack of respect or a lack of fear for consequence. And it tends to be carried out by countries who basically think or know that they can get away with it. And usually they're right. And that's one of the issues going forward, because there are fewer countries, including the United States, whose sanctions are all that meaningful. Greg Miller is an investigative foreign correspondent for The Washington Post, based in London, whose work was awarded the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for the coverage of Russia's interference in the 2016 election. On top of that, Miller also was part of the team awarded the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for The Washington Post's reporting on the US surveillance programs brought to light by Edward Snowden. So we're thrilled to have him on the program today. I think that a lot of U.S. officials would probably object to being lumped into the extrajudicial club. The United States was, was trend, treading into another country's sovereign territory, but secretly with a great deal of permission and authority from that country. And then after 2016, the sort of global attention really shifted in news organizations like mine. Our attention shifted away from the war on terror with the demise of al-Qaeda with the demise of the Islamic State, 
toward more traditional subjects, including Russia's malign influence and interference in global affairs. Now, looking at some of the Kremlin's recent operations, like the ones targeting Skripal and Navalny, some would look at these and accuse the Kremlin of frankly being pretty sloppy operatives. Others would look at this and see some of these missteps as a deliberate play to leap some breadcrumbs behind in order to send a message to other dissidents who may be thinking about passing on damaging information to Western sources. But I'm curious, with your expertise, where do you sit between those two camps? I think I fit definitely in the latter camp. Although I would probably say there is alarming sloppiness on the part of Russia and particularly the GRU, the intelligence service that is suspected of or accused of engaging in a lot of these targeted killing cases. I mean, they have a long and growing record of botched operations, thankfully, for the targets of those operations. And it's not just Sergei Skripal who survived, it's it's Alexei Navalny. And if you've seen the documentary that won the Academy Award last year about Navalny, I mean, I think the most powerful scene or moment in the documentary is when Navalny himself has found the phone numbers of his would-be killers and is calling them and confronting them by phone. And they are confessing to the mistakes that were made thinking that they're speaking to somebody else. But back to your core point, Russia does these Baroque touches using exotic poisons and other methods largely aimed at having a signature so that there is some thin veneer of deniability for the Kremlin, but everybody realizes this is the Kremlin's work. This is Vladimir Putin's reach, and this is what may be in store for you if you defy him. So we can see a similar dynamic playing out with the recent case in Canada with the killing of Dijon. But what do you think this case actually tells us about India's foreign policy and how they're approaching these sort of issues? Every expert I've talked to believes that this does reflect an emboldened India, an emboldened Modi, a certainty or a confidence that India will not face meaningful sanction over this. And I think that that so far has largely borne out. And it's partly the direction that Modi has taken India in a more authoritarian direction. But it's also a reflection of how the world has changed around him. And the fact that the United States, because of its adversarial relationships with Russia and China, probably needs India as much as, if not more than ever, that Modi is likely confident that the United States among others, is not going to seek to inflict enormous punishment on India over a case like this. The United States and its allies have much bigger objectives from that relationship, things that, that just, and to put it crassly, things that matter more. And this isn't just limited to India. More and more countries seem to feel increasingly comfortable going directly after their own citizens abroad. As an example, China sets up quasi police stations. They can arrest and punish its citizens abroad if they speak ill of China. Saudi Arabia has proven to directly target its dissidents, even if they're US citizens or working abroad. Even smaller states like Turkmenistan feel very comfortable sending agents to other countries like Turkey to drag people out of their homes there and then put them on flights back to Turkmenistan where they'll face harsh punishment. So do you think the fact that we didn't kick up a fuss about things like the US drone program or Russia's poisonings of citizens or China's kidnappings of police stations has just opened a can of worms, not only among the big countries, but also amongst these small countries who are now feeling increasingly emboldened and feel like they can get into this game. Do you think we may have just opened a can of worms that frankly may be impossible to shut back up? US officials, when you speak with them in detail about these cases, 
will have justifications that may sound compelling. They will talk about the various reviews and so forth that went into these decisions to take these strikes, mostly in the terrorism context. Those rationales don't go very far. They don't carry a lot of weight with leaders of other countries. They mostly see that as, as American exceptionalism that they don't necessarily agree with or respect. So I think that's that's one of the factors that has led to some of these other cases, including India, including Saudi Arabia, and their defiance of what we'd otherwise consider international norms. We've already seen that the US is more than happy to go after their own citizens as long as they're abroad, and that Russia is very willing to go after their citizens anywhere. So what stops the US moving further down that chain, ending up with programs like the ones we see in Russia? The investigative authorities in the United States have a lot more independence and and wherewithal to get to the bottom of crimes than they do in Russia. It's not to say that the criminal justice system in the United States is perfect or even close to it, but I think it would be infinitely harder to get away with that in the United States than it is in Russia, especially if widely held suspicions about a lot of these mysterious deaths are accurate and that they are in fact sort of state-sponsored or state-sanctioned. In Russia, it's not a bug, it's a feature. It's built into the model of that government. It is built into the way Vladimir Putin has acquired and exercised power from the very beginning. Do you think there is some sort of red line that the US would never ever cross? And if so, where does that line sit? Well, it certainly crossed the red line as far as the Iranians were concerned, right? I mean, they have vowed that the United States ultimately will pay a price for this, that this does seem to have been regarded as a transformational event by Iran. I think that we're already looking at a potentially new era where the willingness to engage in this sort of international operations is, is spreading. I think if we were to see additional examples of cases involving India, cases involving Saudi Arabia, I think that that would be truly kind of harrowing. We saw the Khashoggi example for Saudi Arabia, and it does look like, to, to some extent, Saudi Arabia was surprised by how big a deal that became, by how much fallout there was for the Saudi state. India, I mean, the fallout has been far less significant so far. And if that is instructive to other countries, and we start to see evidence of additional countries, especially kind of countries that like to see themselves as legitimate, influential on the world stage, then I think we are taking a turn. But if we can see the car heading off the cliff, and we know that if we just keep going the way we're going, that more and more countries are going to openly start conducting these sort of operations in whichever country they need to. If we know that's where this path leads, then is there a way to actually stop it? Is it a way of empowering something like the International Criminal Court or enacting some sort of treaties that we could actually attempt to put the toothpaste back in the bottle? Well, frankly, none of this is enforceable. Even if you catch the killer, the state's unlikely to extradite them. Because frankly, the US, Russia, China, India, Australia, France, and the UK are never going to want to give up this lever at their disposal, even if it means it makes their own streets safer. Are we frankly destined for this problem to only get worse? I think it's certainly possible with enough global attention or enough global outrage that you could find ways to disincentivize this sort of conduct. 
But at the same time, the means of carrying out these operations are just proliferating. It will be such a challenge to contain. Look, I was a reporter at the Washington Post covering the drone campaign in Pakistan not that long ago, the US drone campaign against Al-Qaeda targets in Pakistan. It wasn't that long ago. And you know, it seemed astonishing at the time. These robot aircraft patrolling just the remotest patch of land in some of the most remote and unforgiving territory in the region and carrying out strikes from the sky. It just seemed like science fiction. Now we're seeing thousands of drones playing critical roles and operational roles for normal kind of units. The pace of technology carrying out these kinds of operations is just bound to outstrip the ability to contain it. What struck me when I was chatting with our guest this week was not the fact that extrajudicial killings are becoming increasingly visible, nor the fact that there are no mechanisms to really prevent them, but instead the fact that they might just be the latest in a long line of offensive techniques employed by governments to mute their opposition, a return to some of the darkest days of the Cold War. With the other thing rattling through my mind the entire time, being its similarities with other ethical grey areas within US military doctrine, Take something like drone warfare, for instance, which at first may seem far removed from the concept of extrajudicial killings. But like drones, they were something only used by governments and only accessible to the more sophisticated governments, with these drones affording the US ability to go after terrorists who might cause harm to the United States or attack targets without putting US soldiers' lives at risk. And these things became increasingly the go-to bit of equipment for the United States often deployed throughout multiple theatres without any huge oversight put in place, particularly in those first early years. And since then, the US government has normalised the use of UAVs. In fact, normalised it so much that the doctrine of using drone strikes has already been adopted by countries like Russia, China, India, Israel, Azerbaijan, Turkey, and many more, which after the end of this episode should start to sound somewhat familiar to you. Now, to suggest that this next step of extrajudicial killings is simply just one step behind how the widening of the drone programs unfolded is to probably oversimplify a pretty complex issue. However, it's also hard not to see the obvious comparisons between the two. On both of these issues, we still really have no concrete set of rules in place to regulate and stop this spiraling out of control. Because, well, when these things were first introduced, it was really only the US who were playing that game. So the US had no incentive to write a rulebook around it. But now that other players have arrived, bringing their drones to the game, that lack of definite rules really seems like it might muddy the waters here. With extrajudicial killings, the international community seems to be moving more in the direction of, if not complacency, than just familiarity, with these targeted assassinations becoming now just a somewhat regular occurrence. Instances of these extrajudicial killings, not just on the part of Russia or the US, both with what we see as well as what we don't see and stays in the covert world have been accelerating at an alarming pace. And now there are numerous cases of China, India, Iran, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, among many others, having defectors, anti-nationalist advocates, former government officials, or just journalists investigating them, living abroad, that these governments have felt they have the freedom to carry out targeted assassinations of. Some of them choosing to send very loud messages, like Russia and its poisoning of Litvinenko, and others choosing to do it quietly, not quite yet ready to step into the spotlight, and maintaining methods like forced drug overdoses, car accidents, muggings gone wrong, and stabbings in broad daylight. 
However, if we know this is a problem, how could it actually be stopped? And that's where things get complicated. If we were to actually go after the person carrying out that attack, we're not going to get very far, as that operative is probably long gone by the time you finish your investigation, sitting somewhere back in his home country, out of range of any extradition. If we were to instead go after the person or shell company that paid him for the killing, well, now much like trying to convict a PMC for carrying out similar operations, after tracing the money back, you're probably going to end up either in the enemy country or in a third party country like the UAE, where PMCs are legal, making it very difficult to prosecute them for carrying out that action. Well, what am I going after the government who ordered the attacks? Surely there's a way of enforcing something upon them. Well, officially, that's kind of the thing you would use the ICC for, or the International Criminal Court. But the ICC, frankly, isn't going to do anything. In fact, even when there was talk of convicting US soldiers for carrying out similar operations back in the early 2000s, to try and put rules in place on this one, George Bush warned the ICC that if they were to proceed with those charges, that he would happily send US forces in to invade The Hague in order to stop those trials. Yes, US politics have always been this crazy. So the one organization that would actually enforce these mechanisms has already been warned not to enforce these mechanisms meaning that if a country wanted to do something about these killings, the only real option they have would be to declare war on the other country. But who would want to do that over a single killing? Which means in reality, with all the cards on the table, there is no punishing mechanism for carrying out these sort of actions for most countries. Which sadly means there's also no way of slowing these things down. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. This episode took us a long while to put together as it was just so much to unpack and double check and verify. And a lot of this research just took us down so many rabbit holes I don't think we were really ready for. But in the end, I really enjoyed putting it together and hopefully you enjoyed listening to it. Even if it was a bit more gory and depressing than our usual cheerful pieces. Now, if you want to keep up to date with the next big research heavy piece we have coming out, you can find out all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Pod. Or if you can follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz. Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help keep myself and this program going. And speaking of our amazing Patreons, this week I want to thank Ignacio and X-Rays P with the latest patrons to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of patrons like this, who donate a small amount of money each month, and we really cannot thank them enough. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, and you want access to special content like transcripts, Q&As, bonus material, including a recent multi-hour long workshop unpacking the invasion plans of Taiwan, including going through how that war is pretty much determined by just a handful of economic and political decisions, you can sign up to our Patreon today. But for now, this episode on extrajudicial killings is all thanks to you guys. So thanks a lot. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is The New Rules of War by this week's guest, Sean McFate, for a look at the changing landscape of warfare in the 21st century. The second is The Assassination Complex by Jeremy Scahill for a perspective on the early stages of the US drone program. And the third is All the Kremlin's Men by Mikhail Zeiger for a look at Putin's inner circle and his alignments with the state security apparatus. I want to thank this week's guests, Sean McFate, Andrei Soldatov, and Greg Miller. All three of these guests have done some amazing journalism over the years, looking into absolutely huge stories. 
So we felt absolutely humbled to have such an all-star panel this week. I also want to thank my staff as well, particularly the primary researchers on this piece. Cameron Gale, Mason Wise, Robbie Sutton, Ben Nutter, Jemima Pentreath, and Scott Missler-Ferguson. This was a huge episode to pull together, and even more difficult to try and piece it all together into some sort of coherent story. So I cannot thank you all enough for your help on this one. But I'd also like to thank the rest of my staff as well, including Cameron Gale and Wade McCarr, the producers, Perry Grace, Daniela Juvella, Genevieve Donnell and May, Nate Ostiller, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter-Lem, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, Scott Missler-Ferguson, Jemima Pentreath, Ben Nutter, Mason Wise, Gabrielle Lane, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Jamie Tannell, our media director, Raul Devanarayanan, our OSIN analyst, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Kashyap Maheshwari, part of our online team, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. To put a piece like this together takes an amazing team to make it work, and we're incredibly lucky to have said amazing team. For now though, the Red Line will be back in another fortnight, with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.